And welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. We are your retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And I'm Mike Z. On today's show, we remember Archie Comics. We talk about answering machines, telephone answering machines. And we also remember some notable personalities who have left us recently. Well, welcome to another edition of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We're very happy to have you with us. We're all here in the studio again. And before we get started on today's show, uh, Mike Bragg, we were just talking before we went on the air that we are beginning our third year of Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We're two years old. It was back in 2010 that we began these these programs, and now we're entering, we're just starting to enter our uh, our third year. Kind of exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it was a I remember what about three years ago, sitting a summer evening, <laughs> both where we where we both work over at a local television right. station, and we were talking about an idea. I wonder if anyone else out there talks about this baby boomer stuff like we talk about it. I wonder if anybody remembers, or better yet, I wonder if anyone cares. It cares yeah. exactly, yeah. And we're going on three years. Three years now. Wow, three, three years, years later, years. evidently a lot of people care because yes. because of your support. And such supportive emails and accolades from people out there all over the world, actually, literally all over, from all over yeah. the world. Uh, we've kept the show on the air. We've got some great new friends that help us out on this show who are integral parts of our production. And we're really excited about the things that are coming. So it, it's been a great ride along the way. Smitty. Yes, and it's going real smoothly, Mike. And we are slowly but very, very surely making our way to our 100th program that will be coming up sometime this year. And like you said, we have some real good friends that are with us now, like George and Mike Z, who are here with us today. And we're very pleased to uh, be presenting these programs, and we're going to continue. So any input that you folks out there who are listening that would like to give us, we would welcome your input to our shows. So let's go ahead and get ready to get started on today's show. We're going to talk, Mike Bragg is going to talk to us a little bit about Archie Comics. But do you remember this tune? And I understand, Mike, that Archie Comics is 70 years old this year. Talk to us about that. Well, actually, Archie Archie was uh, featured in an episode of Pep Comics back in 1939, but Archie made his own debut as his own comic book star with his own cover in 1942. You know, December 1941, as we all know, was a tumultuous time. We were right at the beginning of a world war, the United States, and Prior to that, 39, 40, 41, there was a, a lot of comics that came out, a lot of comic books, comic titles debuted. A lot of them were action men, Superman, uh, detective comics. But on the other end of the comic spectrum was a young man by the name of Archie. Do you know, you remember his last name, everybody? It was Andrews, Archie Andrews. And uh, everyone knows Archie. If you, if you haven't been a fan of Archie's in the comic book world, as you've walked this earth and you've heard about Archie or no doubt you've watched some TV or movies related to the Archie idea or the Archie family. Archie was a high school guy 
at a campus. We never really know where this high school was, but it was called Riverdale High School. And you added some cohorts of his, in Archie's case, he added uh, Betty, Veronica, and Jughead to the mix. And millions of fans will respond in more than a dozen languages because if you've had an Archie comic book, you know about the romance triangle between Archie, Betty, and Veronica. And uh, the Archie gang has appeared in, in animated and live-action television productions. They've topped the music charts. That was a big hit, Sugar sugar honey honey and that was composed or actually it was recorded by a group called the archies and it was before the television show the archie uh, what we call it the archie franchise they've gone on not only to top the music charts but they've educated the public to the dangers of alcoholism and aids and they've raised awareness to cerebral palsy missing children even environmental issues so Archie's been a, a cultural contribution in the last 70 years. He's 70 years old next month, and we're recording now in February. So in March, uh, light a candle for Archie, 70 years old. Did the Archie comics themselves begin back at that time period, Mike? Yeah, the Arch the, actually, the Pep comics started in 1939. Archie was featured in a couple of them, but they really brought Archie, Betty, and Veronica out uh, in 1942. Now... Archie Comics, the, the company behind the lovable Archie Andrews, they also brought out further, many years down the road, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, uh, Josie and the Pussycats, mm -hmm. remember them? And yes. Remember Sonic the Hedgehog? And they brought those out to comic book and television prominence. In order to attract more female comic book readers, the founders of Archie decided to create an average, wholesome type of character experiencing the ups and downs of daily life. They came up with a character, actually it was loosely based on Mickey Rooney's Andy Hardy roles that began in the late 1930s, and with some real life inspiration from their own friends growing up in the New York City area. Uh, they created Archie Andrews, he was the redhead with freckles, his best friend Jughead was based on one of the comic's founders, this guy named John Goldwater. The first likeness of Archie, as we say, came out as a result of cartoonist Bob Montana, you may be familiar with that name, very popular American cartoonist, who became the principal artist for the Archie series. And the first Archie comic was written by Vic Bloom. It debuted in or December 1941, and it followed up with Archie's own comic book in 1942. Archie was the standout in the first issue, not because his story was outstanding, but because he was an average kid and not a superhero like all the other comic uh, heroes at that time. He was the average guy that so many, so many kids, so many comic book readers could relate to. Uh, the first Archie story revolved around a new girl who came to town. This was the town of Riverdale. We're still trying to figure out what that is. We think it might be Yonkers. I don't know why they would do that to a nice little town like Riverdale, yeah, but I think <laughs> it's some information says it was based either on White Plains or Yonkers, New York. Uh, this was Betty Cooper. Also introduced was Jughead Jones, Archie's best friend, who had no interest in females whatsoever. Archie and a growing number of Riverdale folks were featured in both Pep Comics and another comic book line called Jackpot Comics. Uh, by the time Pep Comics came out in 1942, Archie and his antics were gaining a worldwide audience, and this particular comics issue was pivotal as it introduced a character who would shape stories for the decades to come. That was the wealthy, attractive, clever Veronica Lodge, who was my favorite. She arrived in Riverdale, and Archie found he was attracted to two gals, flashy Veronica and wholesome Betty. 
Isn't that the human condition? I I think we've all gone through that. Isn't this the precursor, though, to the ageless debate, Marianne or Ginger? Absolutely. <laughs> it's been the stuff of sitcoms and dramas and actually, for that matter, murder mysteries for decades long past the comic book for the dime. This is how one of the first famous love triangles was born as Veronica and Betty became rivals for Archie's affection. And despite the era's love of larger-than-life heroes, especially as the United States fought World War II, Archie brought a fresh and welcome perspective to comic books. He was ordinary, kind of silly, and willing to go do outrageous lengths to impress the girls of his dreams. Veronica was feisty and added a spark of mischief to the stories, while Betty was America's sweetheart. Jughead was the comic relief guy, but also demonstrated loyalty, an important message to his pal Archie. As the publishers realized Archie's potential, the young high school lover boy was given an increased presence in their comic books. The first Archie comic came out in 42, and by 1943, Archie was a, he was a household name. The years 44 through 59, Archie took center stage in the comic franchise, and he was probably one of the number one comic characters around, and they brought out other characters. One was Katie Keene. She was a beauty queen introduced in 1945, and she became actually a famous pinup girl for GIs fighting overseas and was featured in other comic book series. So imagine a pinup girl that was a cartoon character, very popular. These guys knew how to market their comic franchises. By the 50s, there was even a radio show featuring the Archie characters. There were other joke books, Archie joke books, Life with Archie spin-offs with Betty and Veronica. Betty had her own comic book. Veronica had her own comic book. They invite, Remember the, the rich kid, Reggie? Very yes. much Reggie yes. was the rich yes. kid. Very much so. Yes. Yes. And Pop Tate, the owner of the soda fountain, Pop. Mm -hmm. And then Jughead's foil was a lady by the name of Big Ethel. There's a question I've always had, because what I associate Jughead with was that crown hat yeah. that he wore. <laughs> and the next time I saw that was watching the Andy Griffith yeah. show in the 1960s where Goober yeah. always yes. had that yeah. same yeah. hat on. He was the, uh, the foil, the other guy. What is that thing yeah. called? The idiot hat? Yeah, it was a, <laughs> I forgot what they were called. They were called beanies and uh. it was the crown. But it was the crown, it and I thought it was, it was sort of a, a variation of the court jester-type yep. hat. Oh, okay. Well, imagine a comic book that's not a superhero, it's the average guy, and every time something new comes as far as American pop culture, the Archies cover it. Either in the Archie, he changed his clothing styles uh, as time went by. Uh, Batman and, and the Men from UNCLE were popular shows in the 60s, and Archie mirrored that renewed interest in superheroes and spies because for a couple of years, Archie became Batman-like. He became a superhero called Purple Heart the Powerful. And uh, it was a Man from UNCLE spoof that they also called the Man from Riverdale, and they'd spell out the letters of Riverdale. So they were copying things, copying cultural issues, health issues, uh, abstinence, how, how to keep away from drugs and alcohol abuse. And so we move up to around the 60s. Archie Mania swept the nation, but the teen really hit the big time when the comic book company did a deal with Filmation to produce that Saturday morning rate, uh, TV show. I don't know if you remember that feature. I do, because, that's what, yes. because what ended up happening, they, took off. they played. They had an opportunity to, to play musical yes. tunes, yes. and that is what provided mm -hmm. the basis, because yours truly, by the way, I have both albums. Do you? Oh, wow. I do. I figured you would. Yes, I have the 33 and a third long playing disc in perfect condition. Oh, 
I have the original one titled The Archies, and then it was actually the second album that was Sugar Sugar. Now, what's interesting is the first album had the cartoon mm-hmm. characters on there, or the co- animation, but on the Sugar Sugar album, they actually had uh, live figures. I'm not, And it was just basically mm-hmm. two teenagers. I don't know who they are, how they chose mm-hmm. them, but it just showed how it became woven into the pop culture from the printed media into the music venue. Well, this is American capitalism and media capitalism at its finest because you have a comic book that has sustained on its own for what three for three decades up comes the mid 60s things are dwindling off in the comic books tv's the big thing so here come the archies with a saturday morning tv show and a bunch of pop music hits one of course sugar sugar went all the way to number one slot in billboard music awards in 1969 and stayed there for five weeks uh, the goopy corny That's song right, yeah. that it was yeah it was big it charted all because of a comic book character and then they would spin off other characters. Sabrina, that was a good example. Sabrina the Witch. Yes. She was given her own TV show, and she shared space with Archie in a new series called Archie's TV Laugh Out. Mm-hmm. And then another female, Josie, of course, we mentioned, who had been introduced in the 40s. She came back in the 60s as a leader of a band called Josie and the Pussycats in 1969. So this was a little money machine, this whole yeah. franchise. Uh, here come the dawn of 1970, and now we're licensing toys. Under the Archie franchise, every character had their own toy and their own uh, dovetail into the toy world. Uh, of course, you want Josie and the Pussycats, you're going to need her uh, concert stage, too. And now you have, we're a, talk, we're a show about nostalgia and generations. We have something from my parents' generation who has now transcended to my generation growing up. Well, I have a 22-year-old daughter who vividly remembers the Archie's TV show in reruns and syndications. They were long gone when she was growing up, but they came back, and she has she has actually read some of the newer Archie comic books. So that's the interesting story about an idea, an American classic pop culture idea that has gone full circle, come back all the way around, and now they're... When we talk about coming all the way around, now the kids in Riverdale are the number one best-selling comic book titles in the world. 32 languages, 46 countries. They've even uh, done experiments with space trying to follow the George Lucas and the Star Wars sagas. They came up with one which I thought was hilarious called Archie 3000 and Jughead's Time Police. (laughs) It's remarkable, though. Comic books have played such an important part of our culture. And, yeah. and I mean, yours truly, I mean, I have a whole series of my favorite comics, including Archie. But what I think is interesting is that in our time, we did a lot more reading. Yes. And depending on what you read, the comics actually could help improve and facilitate an interest in reading. Absolutely. And, and this is kind of where we go with these stories, too, George, because this started out as a pulp comic book, a dime comic book. We fast forward 70 years later, and now the Archie franchise comic series is among the most popular download, online download series in the world. Archie has gone from a pulp comic book that you would buy and then either throw away, your mom would throw away when she was cleaning your room, or you'd give it to a friend, to the stuff that's making online headlines as the number one because they're not even stopping for television anymore. You pop in your iPod and you're listening to your latest episode of Archie 
and Betty and Veronica see what they're mm -hmm. up to. It embodies core values. Core that re values. That remain Still. perennially relevant over time. And that's Still. really what our show has been about. Yes. That yes. we've talked about exactly. you preserve the best of the past and you carry it with you as you move into the future. Well, that's it, right. So true, George. Mm -hmm. And you find that these core values, these programs that embrace the core values are still alive today, trying to give a message to the listening audience. This is good, this is not good, this is what you do to handle this type of situation, this is what you don't do. Even the music, Saturday Night Sock Hop is a great example of core values of American pop music returning to entertain not only the people who were there to enjoy the music when it first came out, but the grandchildren of those listeners who sit there on Saturday night, I know because I helped Mike manage the online presence, and when we look at the downloads, these are not all baby boomers and 60-something people who enjoy the platters. These are people who are just blown away by the music and the meaning of the music and the cultural value of the music. So we really do believe, and we're very proud of the fact, coming on uh, three years now, as we said earlier, that we're contributing back, and uh, we do appreciate the input from our listeners. Absolutely. But that's the Archie Andrews story. Very good, Mike. Thank good you work. so much. Let's just talk real, real briefly. George, you mentioned some of the other comics that you've got. What are some of the other comics that we remember, just the next two or three minutes, just things from the past? Well, my favorites, and I have quite a collection, would first of all be Classics Illustrated, which provided a comic book versions of classic literature, everything from Call of the Wild to King Arthur to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And what it did was that it provided a comic book version of these classic books. And at the very end, it would always say, if you've enjoyed looking or reading through this, go to your local library and get the complete version. So it promoted strong interest in reading. I also like Gold Key Comics based out of Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, which they featured uh, Lost in Space. And I'm not talking about the TV series. This actually predated the television series by three years that was very exciting for me and then Tarzan and in the case of Gold Key they have collectible versions which I still have of the original stories written by Edgar Rice Burroughs again like Classics Illustrated promoting an interest in the original printed books uh, DC Comics World Finest that had Batman and Superman together as partners those were also very exciting I remember also Turok, Son of Stone, another gold key comics about two American Indians who end up somehow being back in time. Wow, that's great. Mike Z, do you have any gold comic books that you remember, or were you really not a comic book guy? I'll tell you what, I used to get Mad Magazine when I was a kid, but yes. and, and that kind of is a sort of a comic book. The only comic book that, my, and my brother collected comic books, and he still okay. does, big collector. No, Radio Shack had a comic book that they put out about the history yes, of electricity. I remember, I remember making a special remember trip to Radio that. Shack and wanting that comic book. I remember that, and somewhere I have a copy of a comic book from, I think, 1949 or 50 that General Electric put out about television. Oh, that I'd love to yeah, see. Yeah, I'll have to find that. That's cool. Yeah, and you know, there was a lot of them, like what George was saying, where you actually learned something. You yeah. learned something about it. Mike Bragg, any other comic books real quickly that you remember from when you were a kid you that know, you George, were your favorites? George and I were talking before the show. I liked, I really did like the history-related comic books. They had a whole series called Fighting Marines, Ooh. Fighting Army, Fighting Coast Guard, Fighting yes. Navy. And I still have a few of those. Those actually told a story. They would, they would be a comic book that profiled the story of a, a certain war or a certain, or not a certain war during World War II, but a certain battle during World War II. So I like the history the classics. I still have several. I remember my first classic comic book was the story of Benjamin Franklin. 
But to me, the thrilling part about the comic book, getting a comic book home on allowance day on a Saturday, were those doggone ads. We talked in oh, previous, yeah, right. those Johnson Smith ads, <laughs> yeah, the right. Schwinn bicycle, the, the Daisy BB, things you could never get. Charles Atlas. Oh, Charlie Charles, Atlas. That's right. The, the sand in the... the face. Kick sand. That man's the biggest <laughs> nuisance on the beach. Yes, his only friends were dogs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who weren't too fond of him, of him themselves. But the ads were just incredible. Yeah, I, I yeah. was, as I said in earlier shows, I'm a professional victim. I'm a professional mark, so had I had the money, which was good that I didn't in those days, <laughs> I would have bought one of each, but the bicycle. Mike Z, oh. do you remember... Sell these sell seeds. seeds. Sell seeds. Sell cards. Win sell. this bicycle. You could sell anything except nobody wanted to buy the stuff to begin no. with. And you couldn't sell enough of anything to get anything more than maybe a, a I don't know, a, nothing really. Nothing you no. want to have. It was just junk. You know? I got so, a pocket knife. You, got, you did? You did better than A very little people. pocket knife and the chain to it was broken when it got in. The same shipping clerk that sent me the chameleon <laughs> oh the story again the dead chameleon yeah, the, chameleon dead, on arrival go, chameleon. the dead chameleon that won't go yeah. away you know, oh there's a fat little kid in la i remember his name let's let's get, <laughs> let's, his let's try his pocket knife out oops <laughs> i think it. you're better off staying with cracker jack yeah, i think yeah. so and you did yeah. wait six to eight weeks for delivery i'm six sure six to eight weeks and it was always toward the eight week part of the six to eight weeks <laughs> or six to eight months <laughs> well good memories uh, of of that of those ads and those comic books and we thank mike for uh, that great piece on Archie Comics. That was great, Mike. Thanks. Well, we're going to move on to our next topic. We're going to talk about something very interesting, telephone answering machines. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, culture and a little bit about the technical part of it. And to get us in the mood, let's, let's listen to this opening of a very classic 1970s TV show. Okay, so our segment is not about Rockford, although we will do a Rockford segment one of these days. It's about telephone answering machines, everything you wanted to know, technical and cultural. And Mike Z, I'm going to turn it over to you. Oh, thank you so much. Actually, I should say, oh, thank you so much. Give it, leave a message, and I'll call you back. <laughs> this really ties in with the, some of the best of what this show can be. Of course, you have history and you have culture, but also we're going to tie in a little bit about technology. All of us here of an age to remember the time when if you called someone and you didn't get an answer, you just had to keep calling them back till you got an answer, right? But the fact is, is that the answering machine, which became common and cheap in the 80s through the 90s really really helped change our culture a little bit and i wanted to talk a little bit about the, the really interesting history of the tele of the telephone answering machine and especially why we weren't allowed to have it for such a really really long time you know recording a phone call is not a big deal recording goes back to the early 1900s, I mean, realistically, there was a Danish inventor by the name of Poulsen, Valdemar Poulsen, and he invented the first magnetic recorder, recorded on wire. And in fact, wire was pretty much all we had to make recordings on well into the 1940s, into the early 50s. But anyway... In the early 1900s, 1901, he invented a machine called the telegraphone. And one of its first uses was for recording telephone calls and for business uses and so on. Now, 
it could not play back very well. There were no electronics at that time. It really needed an amplifier, and that had to wait. But the technology was basically there if you wanted to, to make recordings of phone calls. But the machine was expensive. It didn't work all that well. It never really caught on. So the phone company itself, the Bell System and Western Electric, was so possessive of the phone lines themselves and of the technology, they really didn't want anyone hooking up anything to the telephone line to make incoming recordings or outgoing messages or anything. And besides, the technology didn't really exist. Even if you get up into the 1920s, the dictaphone company that made zillions of dictaphone office recording machines, back in 1923, they actually experimented with a machine called the Telecord. It was a telephone uh, phone recorder, and, and it could also work by remote control. But once again, it was expensive. It didn't really work all that well, and the phone company would get very upset if anybody was found hooking up anything at all to their phone lines. I mean, they were like the, they were like the communication Nazis. They just didn't want you hooking up anything to the phone lines. So we really have to go advance now through the 1930s and 40s when these machines were being experimented with at the phone company. I mean, Bell Labs was trying to come up with some type of a telephone answering machine. And uh, they had some prototypes, but you had to lease them. They were pricey. They was expensive. There was a film in 1960 that changed things a little bit. Many people weren't even aware that there were machines that, that automatically answered phone calls. So we have, to, we have to thank Liz Taylor. There was a film called Butterfield 8. And in this film, she plays a working gal who has a telephone answering machine to help her, you know, with really? her clients, you know. Wow. And wow. it was the first time that many people had seen a telephone answering machine. Early machines around this time usually only recorded, but it was possible to play back. In fact, there was a machine around 19, late 50s, early 60s that had a disc, a 45 RPM disc that just played back a stock message and then a wire recorder that recorded the incoming message. But that that film, Butterfield 8, really, really turned people on to the fact that... Gilbert, you're laughing. I, I, I just, did I, you call Butterfield 8 I called Butterfield 8 and I got her answering machine, yes. <laughs> she never call, she Liz never, never called, called, back. called you she back. She never called you back. Ah, no, nope, sorry to say. No. <laughs> she never called back. Well... No, go ahead. Say what you're going to say. Sorry. No, no. Just George and I were kind of looking at each other, just smiling that a machine that would engage a stock record message and then a wire recorder kicks in. Well, amazing. I've just got, amazing. I've got a picture of it, and and I think I heard the record somewhere. Just said, your let me see. Your call was being answered by an automatic answering machine. Please wow. leave a message. Beep, and that was not personalized. Wow. Know? Yeah. 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 So and and of course we all remember you could order from the Lafayette catalog or Radio Shack for two bucks the telephone suction answering yes. cup. You could put that, and that would record both ends of the phone call, but it right. still wasn't an answering machine. Finally, around the late 1960s, the Codafone company that was making answering machines was trying to sell them to people. Hey, look, we have these machines. You could buy them, hook them up to the phone line, but they had to go to court. I believe it went to the Supreme Court, and the courts finally required that AT&T had to allow its customers to use competing brands of answering machines rather than just lease them from Western Electric. And that is when the, let's say, the first small wave of telephone answering machines started to make themselves available. They were still expensive. Back in the early 70s, 
mostly it was only professional people, doctors, businessmen, pharmacists, people who absolutely could not afford to miss a phone call. It was still considered a luxury item, and they were still between 350 and 800 bucks oh for an gosh. answering machine wow. in the late 60s. Wow. In the late 60s. Now, back in 1975, I was in high school, and my first job was working for a company called BSR. They made turntables, mm -hmm. equalizers, and so on, but they also made something called the Phone Butler, and it was a cassette-based answer answering machine. They must have sold tens and tens of thousands of them, because I remember seeing pallets and pallets and pallets of hundreds of them coming back for repair. <laughs> they were junk, but when they worked, they were cheap and they were affordable. And I think the BSR phone butler was probably one of the very, very first telephone answering machines that was cheap and affordable. This is around the mid-70s. They were about 125 bucks, and by the early 80s, they had dropped down to about 200 bucks. And so they were getting affordable. You could hook them up. Some of them had two cassettes. You may remember the two little cassettes, one for yes. the outgoing message, and it would stop and rewind, and the other one that would record the incoming message. I myself didn't break down and buy one till about 1985-86 when they had the digital outgoing message and then the regular standard cassette for the incoming message, which I still have. And the reason I still have it is because I can record probably... Uh, let's say a month and a half, two months worth of phone calls on a C60 cassette. And more than once, I've had to go back a month or a month and a half for a phone number. There's no way I would be able to do that with voicemail. Right, exactly. No way I'd be able yeah. to do that. Would anybody like to jump in? I'm sorry, I'm monopolizing. No, no, that's here. fine, Mike. Yeah, no, we're all, anybody have any input on it? I'm any, just wondering, was, was the BSR device used on the Rockford files, or do you know? Oh, I don't remember. If it, I doubt it. I, I was looking. I, I saw the video online. It's kind of hard to see what it is. It looks like it's either a Codaphone or something, and it, that would have been about 1975, 76 thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. well, Jim, I mean, you know, I could imagine it's 1975 was just about the transitional point where people finally said, well, can we break down and do this? But here's the breakdown. The sales of telephone answering machines doubled between 78 and 82 to about 800,000 units. There were 3 million by 85, there were 12 million by 89. And the, and the whole AT&T monopoly dissolved in 1984, so it wasn't even an issue of hooking up a, a telephone answering machine. By the early 90s, about 60% of American homes had answering machines. Now, here we sit today in 2012, and virtually nobody but me has one anymore because everybody has voicemail. I've got one too, Mike. I've you do? A, yeah, I've got, although mine is digital. Mine is a, is a digital answering machine, but I've got it here. It uses no tape. I have one. I'm waiting to find either a tube-based one or a steam-based oh, one. Steam -based. I think you have more success finding a steam-based one. But what's interesting is that we're all old enough to remember when this was not at all a common thing, when it was a very common thing, and now when it's pretty much facing obsolescence. I think it's safe to say that the standalone telephone answering machine, you know, because everybody's cell phone now has voicemail, I, I have a feeling it's safe to say it's a device that's quickly becoming obsolete. What would you say? It certainly has changed our culture, however, and the rules of etiquette because now with the advent of the answering machine suddenly it becomes possible to screen incoming calls yep. I remember for example because my father worked in the aerospace industry and uh, he was also a university professor that sometimes the volume of calls was so intense that my mother just used to just take the phone off the hook right. that's right and leave it off for hours now, of course, you can't do that without that thing starting to blare yep. uh, yeah. a, a, a rapid-fire <laughs> yeah. signal. That's saying, right. Whereas before, you could leave it off for hours, and it appeared to be busy. Mm. And then with the advent of the answering machine, you were able to screen the calls. Whereas before, I remember yours truly, 
having to be the screener that, that, <laughs> I, that I, I, I was yeah. given a very specific set of, of, of rules of engagement about how to answer the phone uh-huh. and then, you know, what to ask and to take the message. And that's how it was done. Yeah, but not only could you screen the incoming calls, let's say you could just, you know, you're in another room. Also, you could select who you might want to call back. If it was just some sales call, some salesman, you could ignore that. If it was maybe a personal call or something, you could say, well, you know, I'll call them back later on. So you could, all, all of a sudden, you could edit and customize your time. Exactly, yeah. Like you were saying at the beginning of this piece, Mike, that once upon a time, you know, and we're all old enough to remember, probably a lot of our listeners remember, you'd call somebody. If they weren't home, that phone would just ring and ring and ring. Nobody yep. would answer. Now, you know, you call 99 times out of 100, you get some sort of an answering device yep. that will pick up whether it's a machine or whether it's a voicemail thing. Mm-hmm. We very rarely now get a phone that just rings like something picking up, mm-hmm. either a human or a machine. Mm-hmm. The machines themselves, of course, the desk machine, there's pretty much obsolete, but the whole idea, the breakthrough of having your messages captured if you were not there, uh, how did we get by without that? I don't know because my first answering machine, I was in business and it was 1975. And if you missed a call, you missed a call. If that was a customer or somebody looking around and trying to find somebody who could provide what it is that you offered through your business, uh, he just went down the yellow yellow pages and found somebody else. Yeah, unless you wanted to break down and get an answering service. Yes. Yes, right. Which or, is not cheap. Or, or hire somebody to yes. pick up the phone while right. you weren't right. there. In yeah. fact, there's a wonderful Broadway play, and then later it was a wonderful movie with Judy Holiday titled Bells Are Ringing. Mm. And it's a wonderful romantic comedy about an answering service. Interesting. Interesting. And, of course, wow. Judy Holiday is the love interest, and it becomes quite comical. But it, that uh, presaged the, the actual technology, but you did have that service available. I know for a time that my uncle in New York City, who had several different businesses, that he would ask someone to actually cover the phones mm-hmm. while yes. he was out making his rounds. Right. Yep. Yes. Yeah, you know, if you had somebody there, you had that luxury. That's true. But it's a, it's an interesting little story. It's an interesting little piece of history and technology. One more point I'd yes. like to make is that the outgoing message on an answering machine was one, and, and, and occasionally the incoming, but the outgoing message was one of the few times, maybe the only time in American history when most people were happy and willing to record their own voice. Most mm-hmm. people can't stand the way they sound mm-hmm. when they hear themselves back on a recording. Mm-hmm. But you got to do it for the outgoing message, right? Yeah, so sure. one of the few times people willingly made a recording of their voice to be heard by wow. friends and family and strangers also. Wow. If I could add a postscript to that, and it's, a, and it's somewhat a, per, a personal matter, is that I happen to know people that when they've had loved ones pass away, particularly if it's unexpected, that they have preserved those outgoing messages. Of course. Because it may be the only actual recording of the loved one's voice. Yep, that's true. That's a good point. George, believe it or not, I I have some recordings of some of my uh, one friend and some relatives that have passed away, and I still have those sound recordings Mm -hmm. of them just calling and saying, hi, how you doing? Just calling to check in on you, whatever. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I I remember those uh, 10-year anniversaries last year on the 9-11. Yes. And how precious those messages were. Very much so. Exactly, yeah. To the loved ones who had lost people in the... uh, in any one of the uh, incidents, the terrorist incidents, yeah. that they had kept those. And those were the last messages before the tower came down or yeah. before exactly. the plane crashed. Yep. And, exactly. Uh, they, yeah. Hence, they become part of history. They do indeed. 
And uh, we're going to post some pictures of some uh, of some vintage machines on our Facebook page. I have a friend who's got some, and, I, and including some weird ones. Mike, we were talking about about them before we began the show. That actually have a, like a little fork that'll actually pick up the that'll lift up the phone, the phone, and the outgoing message plays, and then it uses a pickup coil. To yes. pick up the sound of the person calling in. And we're going to post some pictures of that. Yes, and by the way, if you want to learn more about this, let me recommend an excellent book to which I have no connection. It's called Off the Record, The Technology and Culture of Sound Recording in America by Dave Morton. Dave Morton is a research historian for the IEEE, the, the International uh, the Electrical and Engineering Association. He's at Rutgers University, and he wrote an excellent book that covers everything having to do with recording, a chapter of which is dedicated to answering machines and which really helped me put this together, okay? Wonderful, Mike. Thank you for a great piece. Good stuff as usual, Mike. That's almost as exciting as your Saturday night sock hop shows. To hear, to, I leave a message and tell me all about it. Beep! This, this man's incredible. Is there anything he doesn't do? Oh, by the way, that beep that we've all heard a zillion times? Yes. Required by law way back when. Remember, you'd be uh-huh. listening to someone calling in from the AP, the Associated Press, whenever they had people calling in from the uh, uh, countries all over the world, and they would record it for playback later on, they had to have they that have beep. That, yeah. When you listen to old radio shows, someone's calling in from Europe, and you beep, beep, beep. That had to be there when phone, when calls are being recorded. Well, exactly. very interesting. Right? Thank you again, Mike, and thank You're you welcome. guys. Uh, always good to get together in a lively discussion about something we all remember but didn't think we did until guys like Mike come up with these great subjects. I but called you. I left you a message. You didn't call me back. That wasn't you, was it? <laughs> I put it on your machine. How do you know it was you leaving the message? Oh, what, uh, your machine called my machine. Oh, so you're monitoring my calls. <laughs> <laughs> Who's on first? Okay, we're going to take our retro commercial break here on our show, and we do want you to come back. You are listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network, and we'll be right back. Do not, do not go away. If you haven't yet tasted Mogan David Concord Grape Wine, you're missing out on a wonderful taste. When's the right time to try it? Anytime you'd enjoy a chill glassful of wine with a good, rich flavor of big, juicy grapes. Pick up a decanter of Mogan David Concord Grape Wine soon. In fact, try all four Mogan David wines in the distinctive new Mogan David Multipack. Mogan David Concord Wine, specially sweetened. Mogan David Wine Corporation, Chicago. This is Bill Earle, and you're listening to the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. Oh, Mogan David Wine, my favorite vintage. Uh, in the new improved uh, screw top lid. Oh, wow. <laughs> what did I major in high school? MD20, Mogan David, also known as Mad Dog. Roof, roof. Yeah, Mogan David. Boy, that was a blast from the past, and I do mean a blast. You are back with us, and we do thank you for sticking around and poured a nice chilled glass of Mogan David and get ready for the second half of this exciting show here on Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. Uh, we're coming back to uh, Gilbert, who is bringing us some uh, remembrances of some of the people who have passed from us in the past, uh, well, since the last show. Uh, Gilbert, yeah, take it away. Thanks, thanks, Mike. Yes, we have some uh, notable obituaries, and we're going to begin with Richard Threlkeld, a versatile correspondent who worked for both CBS News and ABC News during a long career. He died January 13th at a hospital in Southampton, New York, after a car accident. He was 74 and lived in nearby East Hampton on Long Island. Mr. Threlkeld spent more than 25 years at CBS News, retiring in 1998. 
He was a reporter, anchor, and bureau chief. He covered the Persian Gulf War and the Vietnam War, Patty Hearst's kidnapping and her trial and the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968. He also worked at ABC News from 1981 to 89 before returning once again to CBS. Johnny Otis, the musician, band leader, songwriter, impresario, disc jockey, and talent scout who was often called the godfather of rhythm and blues, died January 17th at his home in Altadena, California. He was 90. He helped a good number of performers to stardom, among them Etta James, Jackie Wilson, Esther Phillips, Big Mama Thornton. Mike Z, any uh, thoughts on uh, Johnny Otis? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I gave, him, I gave him a lot of credit on my show, and I dedicated the better part of one of my shows to him. Johnny Otis, as you said, was a band leader, a songwriter, a record producer, a piano player, a drummer, a TV show host, a DJ. He, had, he, he just did everything you could possibly want to do in, in the West Coast music scene from the mid-40s pretty much up to the day he died. He was a legend. Legendary, pivotal guy who lived the life and loved the music, and uh, Johnny Otis will never be forgotten around here. Exactly. He had a string of rhythm and blues hits with his own band in the early 50s and a top 10 pop hit in 1958 with his composition, Willie and the Hand Jive. You bet. And his many other compositions included Every Beat of My Heart, Mm -hmm. a top 10 hit for Gladys Knight and the Pips in 1961. Although an important figure in black music, Mr. Otis was not African-American. He was of Greek descent. But he immersed himself in the African-American culture from a very early age. And someone who we just mentioned in our obituary of Johnny Otis, Etta James, Mm. died on January 20th from complications of leukemia and dementia, among others. She was 73. She is most often referred to as a rhythm and blues singer, and that is how she made her name in the 1950s with records like Good Rockin' Daddy. But she was versatile and also in singing pop standards, such as her hit tune, At Last, which was released in 1961. Mike Z, any thoughts on Etta James? We played Etta James uh, things also. Interestingly enough, Johnny Otis helped get her career started, and the very first recording that she did was called Dance With Me, Henry, with Johnny Otis's band backing her up. So there's an interesting tie in there. And uh, she, another great who will not be forgotten. Powerful voice. Powerful voice on that lady. She was signed by Chess Records in 1960. Mm-hmm. And that was also home to Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, and a whole string of uh, other stars of black music. Uh, Ms. James had triumphs and challenges during her career, partly because of changing audience taste, but largely because of drug problems. She developed a heroin habit in the 60s. After she overcame that, she began using cocaine. She candidly described her struggles with addiction and her many trips to rehab in her autobiography, Rage to Survive. Dick Tufel, the longtime radio and TV announcer who intoned Danger Will Robinson as the voice of the robot in the 1960s science fiction TV series Lost in Space, died January 22nd at his home in Studio City, California. He was 85 and had been in declining health since suffering a fall last year. Besides warning young Will Robinson of impending danger, Tufel's robot uttered other lines that became well-known to fans and viewers, including That Does Not Compute, And he also needled the antagonistic Dr. Zachary Smith with barbs like, Dr. Smith is a bubble-headed booby. George Helwakos, we talked about Lost in Space a while back, and uh, you wanted to make some comments on Dick Tufeld. Well, I think that Dick Tufeld, in addition to uh, providing the voice for the iconic Lost in Space robot, was also the narrator for the series. And he was always the voice that introduced what the evening's episode is going to be, and then also in closing as well. And then in the third and final season of the show, he was also previewing the following week's program. And finally, he was brought back 
1998 when Lost in Space was made into a full-length feature film. So that voice uh, was not only provided for the robot, but also for the narration. Absolutely. And his other TV credits from the 50s through the 90s included Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, The Fantastic Four, The Gallant Men, Surfside Six, which we mentioned previously, Annie Oakley, and a variety shows starring Judy Garland and Julie Andrews. And I particularly remember Mr. Tufeld as the announcer for CBS's 50th anniversary series of programs in 1978. January 24th, James Farentino, the tall, dark, and dashing actor who was in nearly 100 roles on stage, screen, and television, died in Los Angeles. He was 73. The cause of death was heart failure following a lengthy illness. Mr. Farentino had many roles in television and movies, among them recurring appearances in such series as The Bold Ones, The Lawyers, Dynasty, Blue Thunder, and Police Story. His film roles included The Pad and How to Use It, Me, Natalie, and The Final Countdown. His most recent credit was in the 2006 movie Drive 2. Greg Cook, American collegiate and professional football quarterback, died January 26th from pneumonia. He was 65. Cook was the American Football League Rookie of the Year in 1969 following a stellar collegiate career at the University of Cincinnati, where he set 15 school records and had a share of two others. His signature collegiate game was setting an NCAA record 554 yards passing against Ohio University in 1968. His professional career essentially lasted one season in which he led the AFL in passing in 1969 and set two rookie records that still stand. A a torn rotator cuff and limited medical technology at that time ended Cook's playing career in the midst of his record-setting rookie year. He permanently retired from professional football in 1973. George, you were... uh, a fan of Mr. Cook. Any any uh, thoughts on him? Well, very much so. Bill Walsh, who, of course, uh, was inducted into the Hall of Fame for leading the 49ers to multiple world championships, was the offensive coordinator at the time in Cincinnati, and he has observed that uh, Greg Cook was the greatest quarterback that never was because he had such enormous promise. And it, so it truly was a loss, uh, not only when he was injured, but um, when he departed this life. Absolutely, George, and it's unfortunate, but he retired professionally from football, as we said, in 1973 after three operations proved ineffective in resolving his injury. And Mr. Cook, who majored in art while in college, continued to paint and eventually had his works on display in the Ohio governor's mansion. John Rich, who won two Emmy Awards while directing and producing All in the Family during its first four years, died January 29th in Los Angeles after a brief illness. He was 86. He was once described by Dick Van Dyke as the best comedy director he had ever met. Mr. Rich began his nearly 50-year directing career during the the days of live television in 1953 and soon moved on to film series such as I Married Joan, R. Miss Brooks, Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And apart from All in the Family and the Dick Van Dyke Show, Mr. Rich's TV credits include The Twilight Zone, Gomer Pyle, USMC, Gilligan's Island, The Brady Bunch, Maud, Good Times, The Jeffersons, Barney Miller, and Newhart. And during the 60s, he also directed five feature films, Roustabout and Easy Come, Easy Go, both starring Elvis Presley, The New Interns, Wives and Lovers, and Boing Boing. Don Cornelius, creator of the song and dance TV show Soul Train, died February 1st in Sherman Oaks, California, from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Mr. Cornelius was 75. During bitter divorce proceedings in 2009, he told an L.A. judge he was suffering from, quote, significant health issues and wanted to, again quoting, finalize this divorce before I die. Cornelius was arrested in 2008 for beating up his wife. He pled no contest to misdemeanor domestic violence and was placed on three years probation 
His probation had just terminated. It was in 1970 that Mr. Cornelius started Soul Train, which ran for 35 years on the air, making it the longest first-run syndicated show in history. With his smooth, resonant baritone, Cornelius introduced hundreds of stars to the national uh, multicultural scene, including James Brown, Jerry Butler, Marvin Gaye, the OJs, and Barry White. In the background were colorful dancers who influenced dance and fashion and opened a window into black culture that had received limited media exposure. Guys, anybody, uh, any comments on uh, Don Cornelius? Well, Don started out, I'd like to point out, he started out as a disc jockey himself. And he always yes. he always said that he wanted to do a black version of American Bands. They yes. were all black acts, all black hosts, all black kids, and that, and he did. And it was very successful. I remember watching it in the 70s when I was a kid. I think we all watched it. But what I think is interesting, Mike, is that that show actually transcended both gender and race. It was very popular yep. across the whole demographic spectrum. And it remained iconic uh, through several decades. Yes, it did. I was a little suburban kid living in the suburbs of New York. I was, what, maybe 15, and I used to watch it. So, good show. Mr. Cornelius developed the concept while working as a journalist and DJ in Chicago. Mike, as you would mentioned, Soul Train started as an after-school dance show on WCIU, supported by such local acts as Curtis Mayfield and the Shylights. Cornelius later moved production of the program to Los Angeles for a weekly syndicated show that premiered in 1971. Ben Gazzara, the actor best known for his starring role on the NBC program Run for Your Life, died February 3rd in Manhattan. He was 81 years old. The cause of death was pancreatic cancer. Mr. Gazzara studied with Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio in Manhattan, where the careers of stars like Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger were shaped. In his years, he appeared on stage in dozens of movies and television programs. A sample of his work in motion pictures, he appeared in Anatomy of a Murder in 1959, the 1969 comedy, If It's Tuesday, This Must Be Belgium, in Husbands in 1970, and The Killing of a Chinese Bookie from 1976. Mr. Gazzara also acted off-Broadway in regional productions, among them Nobody Don't Like Yogi, a one-man show about Yogi Berra, in which Mr. Gazzara began performing in 2003 and took all over the country for two years. Whitney Houston, the multimillion-selling singer who emerged in the 1980s as one of her generation's greatest rhythm and blues voices, only to deteriorate through years of cocaine use and an abusive marriage, died on February 11th in Beverly Hills, California. She was 48. The apparent cause of death was consumption of alcohol and prescription drugs. She was there to attend a pre-Grammy party. Details about Miss Houston's life and career are generally well known. She began her singing career over two decades ago. Her voice range spanned three octaves. Her mother was Sissy Houston, a gospel and pop singer who had backed up Aretha Franklin and is the cousin of Dionne Warwick. Among Whitney Houston's hits were Saving All My Love For You, How Will I Know, and The Greatest Love Of All. Guys, uh, Mike Z, uh, George, any comments on Whitney Houston? I loved her rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. Yes. As you all know, I'm the sports enthusiast of the bunch, but... I can remember like it was yesterday when she gave such a stirring rendition and it was in the midst of Desert Storm. It yes. uh, occurred in January of 91, I believe, that game. And uh, when she sang and hit those notes, the planes flew overhead. It was a remarkable moment. Exactly. And Mike Z, you mentioned Whitney on your show uh, that the Saturday that she passed away. I did. I did. Bad scene. Uh, I mean, she joins Billie Holiday, uh, who also killed herself with drugs, quite frankly, and a few other, well, Dinah Washington, who was not a drug addict, but did die through a possibly unintentional 
uh, prescribed medication overdose. It's just, it's just really, really sad. But I think Whitney Houston's work will be remembered for a long, long time. Tremendously popular. Exactly. She also appeared in a number of movies, The Bodyguard, Waiting to Exhale in 1995, and The Preacher's Wife in 1996. February 13th, Russell Arms, the singer and actor who was a regular vocalist on the popular TV musical program Your Hit Parade, from 1952 to 57, died at his home in Hamilton, Illinois. He was 92. The cause of death was not released. Along with other regular cast members, Giselle McKenzie, Snooky Lanson, and Dorothy Collins, Mr. Arms performed what were billed then as the seven most popular songs in the country every Saturday night on the NBC show. The program had begun on radio before moving to television in 1950, and it aired until the spring of 1959. Your hit parade eventually failed in its bid to capture an audience more interested in rock and roll's premier artists than cover acts. Mr. Arms began his career as an actor working for Warner Brothers in 1941 until he was drafted the following year. After the war, he returned to Warner Brothers for a time before pursuing a career in radio. He worked steadily on radio in New York before landing the spot on your hit parade. After he left the show, he had guest roles on episodic TV series including Have Gun, Will Travel, Rawhide, and Perry Mason. Those are the obituaries this time around, some notable, notable individuals. Uh, guys, any comment on anybody else that we've talked about here? We've uh, got quite a uh, eclectic mix of individuals that we've recently lost. Well, I just have one comment. Unlike times when I have many comments, but when we lose somebody that we were a fan of or that we followed our political leader, I, pers I personally try to remember the gift and not the person. Mm -hmm. You know, when my plumber would go out on an alcoholic binge, it didn't matter to us as long as the toilet quit overflowing. And when a neighbor's house burned down, we felt sad for the neighbor, but we, o we were overjoyed that the neighbor survived and went on with their lives. And when we do lose a notable, and there's been so many of them, and unfortunately they've, they've died at the hands of tragic situations, this will go down, whatever the toxology or whatever you call it, whatever the report is, uh, it will not end well. And we'd just like to take a moment even on this show and say that we actually, we, we respect the work of the people over the years and all the people we've talked about and all the people that we've remembered. We've talked about Marilyn Monroe. We've talked about uh, some of the notorious people in history that, that probably didn't deserve as many minutes as we gave them. But right. I just want to say I thoroughly enjoyed uh, Whitney Houston herself was an American original ingenious, just a beautiful voice and a very beautiful person inside. And uh, you have people actually going on blogs now uh, talking about the bad stuff and how horrible it would have been to go out drowning in your own bathwater and try to remember the gifts, not only in the notables and the famous people and your favorite artists, but in everybody as you, as you walk through this life. Because life itself is so frail, number one, and so short, number two. And uh, we just want to remember, and, and just Whitney, I, I think of Whitney Houston music, I think of my daughter being born, both daughters, I think of a song that my wife and I shared uh, on our fifth anniversary, so uh, I'd like to thank Whitney for her gifts, not the way she went out, the way she, that she ran into the world. I think another thing to keep in mind, and, and I look at this from an Orthodox Christian perspective as being a member of the clergy, I always say a prayer that may the memory 
of those who have departed this life be eternal and to also remember that the person who has departed this life may be someone's husband, wife, mm -hmm. brother, sister, daughter, son. This is someone that not only left uh, an indelible contribution in their field of endeavor, but also on the lives of whose uh, tapestry was woven together with theirs. That's a very good point, George. You know, we look at them as celebrities, as well-known individuals. They were somebody's daughter, son, brother, husband, wife, uh, you know, and so there's also a family connection. There are people out there that are, that are deeply, deeply mourning each one of these individuals. Very much so. That's true. So many of us were lucky if we're remembered by our family and our friends and so on, but these artists leave this tremendous body of work and they will be remembered forever. Absolutely. So anyway, that's... Uh, this has been one of the better shows, and I really enjoy the hour format, Smitty. And I Absolutely, know Mike. We kicked that idea around for several months before we went into it. As you, the listener, knows, uh, you've been sitting there listening to us about twice as long as you typically listen to us, <laughs> and we hope it was worth it. We do hope that we present you value for your time that you spend with, with us, and we certainly thank you for that investment in time that you give us on behalf of the Galaxy Nostalgia family here. So we're going to wrap up this show because we're pushing right in at an hour. We did want to thank you. It's been a great show. And on behalf of this station, the network, and I, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. I'm George. And I'm Mike Z. And we're here to thank you again for listening to us. You can continue listening to us if there's something you missed in the show or you missed the show or you want to tell somebody else about it. Send them over to Apple iTunes and search for Galaxy Nostalgia. Those two search words should get you to our podcast channel. We're also available on Facebook. Galaxy uh, Moonbeam Nightside is our Facebook friend page. Uh, we also love and really, really appreciate those emails that come in. They help us navigate which direction to go into future shows. So thank you for those emails. Keep them coming at Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight at Gmail. And of course, our mothership, so to speak, is our website, <laughs> galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. And again, it's been great presenting this show to you. We look forward to talking to you again on future episodes here at Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.